Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar guest show. You know who we have. We have one of our genuine favorite guests. I have more folks asking for more Stefan Johansson than almost anyone else, my man. So I don't know what it is. Could be the sexy look. Could be the great stories. I don't know. But glad to have you back here for a week in IndyCar. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Always. Well, before we started recording, we're talking about how you were doing. You said it feels a bit like Groundhog Day. And I said, well, you and your art studio, which is within walking distance to the beach in Southern California, being across from a church, it sounds like you're in a, in a pretty good position to survive this shutdown, my friend. Yeah, I'm not complaining. That's for sure. I mean, I'm actually kind of enjoying it, you know, in a way, because it's uh, I can really get on with things. You know, I've been more productive this period, I think, and I have in the last two or three years as far as that side of my life goes. Uh, obviously, it's a bit, you know, I do miss the racing, I have to admit. I mean, it's, you know, we're all getting out, gearing up for the first race of the year and the excitement of that, which is the same every year. But, you know, it's a, obviously a huge anticlimax for all of us, you know, not to be able to um, to go to the races and, and enjoy that. Let's say a quick thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and also Bell Racing Helmets USA, and jump into the great, truly great questions we have for you, Steph. Tomorrow, yeah. by the way, the uh, the 8th of May is a fun little milestone. No, I'm sorry, not tomorrow, Friday. Good Lord, I can't even count anymore. Uh, Friday marks a pretty cool little milestone, which will be the fourth anniversary of uh my silly podcast of which you have been again a great participant i know we've posted uh three four five episodes and i think i still have one or two in the can um that one maybe we yeah. captured at sebring we only got as far as Legia, i think on the last one so we got we only got about another 25 years to go really <laughs> <laughs> i still have your uh the the short little clip on the deer strike at, at the Osterreich ring to post here shortly, just cause it's so mental, but Oh yeah. yeah. Look, man, uh, uh, we're happy to present, uh, your insane and amazing life to folks here on the good old podcast. So why don't we get rolling Steph, And, uh, where should we go? Why don't we start off with our pal Ryan Ward as an interesting one. So Stefan, as a driver manager and agent, how does this, shortened bizarre season affect your negotiations going forward he says does getting drivers extended for say the 2021 season become easier or harder uh also asks if you anticipate iRacing uh or or doing esports being a part of future contracts knowing how big it's become here so how does this mess with you and your clients and trying to do future contracts knowing we have this weird abridged season ahead of us well, I mean, of course, it affects everybody right from the top all the way down. You know, I mean, because there's just such a huge level of uncertainty, you know, within, I mean, in general. I mean, the whole world is uncertain, obviously. But, you know, on a more sort of micro level, motorsport is obviously affected as well. We don't know to what level yet, of course, until the things really sort of, you know, starts moving again or, or we get into exactly that you know discussing 2021 and and, and onwards you know mm. so it's very difficult to answer the question right now to be honest you know it's it's it is we just kind of have to play it by ear and see see how things develop you know hopefully it'll be good and it'll be a lot of excitement when we get started there again you know i think that's that's crucial to to get get things moving again because motor racing in general, is it's not always black and white, you know, in terms of return and investment and so on. It's a very emotional engagement, you know, from from everybody, and you know, including manufacturers, sponsors, team owners, you know, everybody really. Media, I mean, everybody, you know, it it, it sucks you in, as you know, um, and you know, people become fans, and that makes things a lot easier to. You know, make decisions, but when nothing's happening, it's it's very tough for everybody. I think so. I think it's really crucial that we get started again, you know, as soon as possible, and really get get some real racing going. 
What about from the iRacing angle, Steph? Because that's an interesting one I I think raised last week or the week before in the show from a listener saying, hey, I'm sure all the iRacing we've seen IndyCar drivers and all the other drivers doing, it's born out of necessity, might not be in their contract, though. Do you think there might be anything future-wise where teams are saying, hey, we want to make sure that if by chance we need to or want to have you doing, you know, esports with us, that's something you're obligated to contractually? Is that something you ask extra money for? Just curious how you approach that. Well, it's obviously a, a, quite a new thing, you know, although it's only new in, in the real world of racing. Obviously, esports is actually probably bigger than motor racing in many levels, not racing esport, but other games, you know, like Fortnite and so on. And some of the participants, as you probably know, are actually making far more money doing that than, than any other real sport, you know, including NFL and everything. So, I mean, I think the highest payout in any sporting event went to that 16-year-old kid who won that big Fortnite tournament. So it's definitely a big thing. But I think motor racing in its current format on that platform has still got a very narrow audience um, in, in the bigger picture. So I doubt whether it'll ever be a situation where it's going to replace the real thing. I, I, I seriously doubt that. Uh, but for sure, it's got a, it's space. There's no question about that. Um, as far as negotiating for the drivers, I mean, most drivers I talk to, to be honest, I kind of, they're over it by now, yeah. you know. <laughs> because the thing is, you know, I mean, with, with real racing, I mean, you do your testing, you do your races, you do your prep, but, you know, everything else. But, I mean, these guys, some of these guys are on the simulator eight hours a day. Literally, you know, you, you don't have a life. I mean, and, and of course, like everything else you do, you, the more you do it, the better you get. So if you want to keep up, you know, you just have to do it because that's what the other guys are. And they're all good. So, you know, it means that if the other guy is willing to put a little bit more time and effort into it, he's going to get a little bit better than the rest of them. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. And I think most of the drivers I've talked to, not just the guys that I look after, but in general, like, I mean, I'm talking about professional, like racing driver in the, I don't know if you, real world or whatever you want to yeah, call yeah. it. But pro, yeah. In pro series, yeah, yeah. Yeah, is, I think they they see the, the fun side of it, and it was kind of fun at the beginning, but then, you know, I think most of them are kind of, you know, they want to get on with the real thing again. It's funny, actually, because I was invited to do that Legends thing. yeah. And uh, I didn't, well, I didn't have access to a rig, you know, so I couldn't, uh, it wasn't really an issue. But I was on there, they had an internal kind of WhatsApp chat group, all the drivers. Yep. You know, so this is before the first race. So, you know, everybody's on there and, you know, sort of Wednesday they start the practice. Tuesday, Wednesday, I can't remember. And everybody's like, ha ha, you know, hard training with a glass of beer, you know, while they're driving, and, you know, smoking <laughs> a cigarette, uh, you know, glass of vodka, you know, whatever. So, I mean, everybody's just having fun and laughing, you know, and then sort of Thursday, it gets a bit more serious. Then they get frustrated. Oh, I can't get the traction control to work, blah, 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 blah. You know, Friday, it's like, and then come Saturday with the race, it's like full-on race mode, like they were ready to do the Indy 500 in real, you know. It's like, and that's just the nature of the beast. And we were all super competitive to begin with. Otherwise, we would never have got as far as we did. And, and it, you know, that never goes away. So it was just not being, you know, participating, but just viewing it was just hilarious, you know, <laughs> how the personality changed from the sort of, fun and games to 100% serious by Saturday morning when the race was on. I absolutely love this. This is the best. Let's go to Chuck Hover. Says, Steph, how do you see the business side of sponsorship evolving uh, during these somewhat compromised times? And also was curious if you're still working in a part of the uh, Scuderia Corsa IMSA effort. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I'm very much involved with Scuderia Corsa still. Um, you know, that's a good program and they're great, great, very good people to work with. So, yeah, I, I very much enjoy that. 
Um, as far as the sponsorship, again, you know, I mean, I, it's too early to say, I think, you know, how, how all this is going to evolve. But, I mean, generally speaking, anyway, I think the the world is evolving at such a fast rate at the moment. So you got to always be creative and, and find new ways to, you know, give the best return investment for sponsors that you can, you know, and, you know, historically that was basically, you know, you, you, you dress the car up in their livery and, and, you know, you rely on TV numbers, you know, but, uh, you know, that may not be enough of them, you know, going forward. So, I don't have the answer right now, but I think everybody's looking at it creatively in different ways to to be able to make that work. You know. Let's move to here. We go. Let's go to Peter Nutt, our friend from Holland. He says, "Steph, which driver would you really like to see come over and do an IndyCar race or two? Jensen Button, Jimmy Johnson, or Lando Norris?" Well, it'd be great to have all three. I think, <laughs> you know, I mean, Jensen lives here now, but I, I don't think it doesn't sound like he's got the desire to, to do IndyCar again. But I think it would be terrific if all three did it. You know, it'll be a, a huge lift for IndyCar too, and I'm sure that they will absolutely love it. You know, because the format of IndyCar, in my opinion, as far as the competition side goes, is still it's the best series out there, no question. You know, the car is well balanced, you know, between being fairly simple in its design and the cost of running the car in comparative to in comparison to what the performance you get out of it and the, the level of competition and how close the racing is and everything. So I'm sure they'd love it. I would love to see Jensen in particular because I think he still has the firing capability. Oh, yeah, no question. I think Lando would be, you know, a no-brainer. I don't think there'd be anything really to learn with Lando. I think he's going to be quick. He's going to be up, for, you know, there would yeah. be no surprise there. Jimmy Johnson, I think I'd love to have because I know it would help the sport, but I would not expect Jimmy to be truly competitive. Like him being 12th at, you know, Road America or whatever, that'd be a win. That'd be amazing, but... In terms of real mixing it up and still having it, I'd love to see Jensen get stuck in there. Uh, Let's see. Where should we go? All right. So this is a topic you and I have discussed many times. I think I've written a story almost titled, Stefan Johansson has driven more 1,000 horsepower race cars than anybody. So this is a question from our man Todd Murray, Mm -hmm. who says, Steph, having driven more 1,000 horsepower race cars than anybody, did you have a favorite engine? Among F1, IndyCar, you name it. And he asks, uh, which of those monster motors were the most user-friendly? Was there one that terrified you the most? Um, well, the, I mean, before, you know, they put a block on the boost pressure in F1, I think, in 80. They started that in 86. Six, yeah. Yeah. So eighty, the 85 Ferrari was just insane i mean the the i mean in qualifying we had well we didn't know how many horsepower where well, we we assumed it was well over 1500 <laughs> and i remember at monza you know in qualifying um the rev counter went to like i think 14000 and then it was just it just stopped it was like a, a, a sort of a diagonal from oh sorry horizontal Rev counter, then you know that went from left to right, and by the time I crossed start and finish, it was already at fourteen thousand, and you're not even halfway down the straight yet. So God only knows how many RPM I was pulling by the time I hit the brakes at the end of the straight. But I mean, the thing was, it was just ridiculous. It was one lap qualifying tires, and it had wheel spin in every gear, which changing gear from fifth to six, it had wheel spin going down the straight. Adding opposite was, lock going into six gear. qualifying guys that had like ridiculous amount of grip, you know. So it was uh, it was just uh, insane the amount of power. Which I mean, it was fantastic to drive, you know. But uh, frightening, terrifying, but fantastic at the same time. And knowing how small the motors were, Steph, at one and a yeah. half liters. I mean, tiny, but yeah. also with you know 
big turbos. Can you describe the lag? Because I, you know, I just imagine you getting to the end of the front straight at Monza doing eight million miles an hour. You know, coming to a fairly sharp corner and just mashing the throttle, waiting, and then breaking your neck once the the boost comes in. But what was the lag like, drivability, etc. of that eighty five Ferrari? Well, you you had to anticipate the corners all the time, you know, which was obviously a bit of a bit of a balance in the air. But you had to t- drive a completely different line too, because you're really just you just sort of hugging the inside of the corner as late as you could. And by the time the boost, and then you sort of hit the throttle and you wait for it, the boost to come in, and then you you needed as much room as you could, you know, on the exit. So you just let you would taking a tight line much, much longer than you would normally do because when the boost came in, you needed every half inch of space you could. And it was just a matter of them picking the gears as quick as you could because, I mean, the thing was lit up and you literally went through the gears like in three seconds. You went from second to sixth almost, you know. It was, it was <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, quali- the qualifying time – Obviously, uh, most of the time was actually determined by how quickly you could change the gears because we had crossgate then, you remember? So it was, yeah. you know, you literally manual shifting, you know. And if you can get the shift done quickly, then that would give you a quicker lap time than anything else. Just insane. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was insane. But it was, uh, it, at the same time, it was, you know, it was the ultimate as far as a race car go, I think. So Kevin Kerner keeps us on this topic a little bit. He says, Stefan, when you look back at your amazing career, is there one era that you maybe put above the rest? You were there for Turbo F1, sports cars, prototypes, cart, IndyCar. He says, man, you hit all the golden eras uh, I can think of. Well, I think the Turbo era in F1, the early, that early part of was pretty special, you know, but I did Group C at the same time, and the Group C cars were just as crazy as the Formula One cars. <clears throat> you know, they had, I mean, the 956 Porsche had about, I think, about 1,100 horsepower in qualifying trim, and an insane amount of downforce because they had the full tunnels from the front to the back, you know, so the downforce on the car was just, I mean, ridiculous amount of downforce. So, you know, very high grip and massive power. So, I mean, they, they were equally exciting to drive as the F1 cars almost. So I think that whole era from, you know, sort of early 80s to, let's say, 86, 80s, 87 was probably the, in many ways, the best era, I think, in that regard. Let's maybe stay here for just a second, Steph. So you happen to do a thousand kilometer race at the Nürburgring in 1994 in a Porsche 956. Was there some other, did you have a, there was some teammate you might've had. I don't know if he was ever any good, but there's some rumor. There's some Brazilian guy you might've driven with there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, Well, that wasn't, that was at the Nürburgring Grand Prix track. That wasn't on the Nordschleife. Oh, okay. Apologize. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, the short course. Yeah, on the short course, yeah. So you and Ayrton Senna and Henri Pescarolo, uh, you know, four-time winner of uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans, that yeah. too, uh, even though it wasn't the full mm-hmm. Nordschleife, uh, I'm guessing that was a fairly amazing experience as well. Yeah, oh, of course it was, yeah. But, I mean, the, the, as great as the Nordschleife was, the Grand Prix track was never, never that exciting to drive on, to be honest. Uh, it was more of a typical, I would say, like a modern track, you know. Uh, nothing was really challenging in that regard. But, uh, but it, I mean, it was a fantastic experience. But unfortunately, the weekend was kind of miserable because it was cold and rainy, and it wasn't, a, you know, an enjoyable weekend because of that, you know. What? But it was, you know, obviously, Ayrton was, of course, very impressive, you know, no question about that. What did you get to drive around the full Nordschleife? Because I'm sure you've been around there in F2 cars or something no, crazy. The, uh, the last race I ever did in the 956, they're like the proper car, if you like. In 80, that was in 83. Three. Yeah. 
with uh, Bob Wallach and I, we finished second in the in the thousand case then. I think I was second in qualifying behind uh, Balov, who then flew off the road in the race. But uh, um, and I think that's still the quickest lap time anyone's ever done around there in an official capacity. I think you and I have discussed this too, and I'm forgetting it. But for those who haven't heard, you talk about qualifying at Monza in '85 in a Ferrari Formula One car. If we're just talking frightening, amazing, I'm guessing. A nine five six wound up on boost in qualifying at the full ring circuit as well in eighty three. That must have been something where you might have had to stop a few times during that lap to change your shorts. That I think hands down. Well, that yeah, it's probably the most let's say frightening experience. But at the same, I mean, you know. Uh, that's kind of what racing was all about. And to my opinion, it should still be a little bit about that, you know, because, I mean, literally, you know, you you committed in such a way and not quite knowing what, you know, what's around, what's going to happen the next moment, you know. Uh, but, I mean, the, not just the qualifying, but the whole race was like that, really, because it was drizzling the whole race. And we were on slicks the whole time because the, the car had so much downforce that you could still run almost the same lap times, even with a slight drizzle and a damp track, because it, it was just insane the amount of downforce. And that was the whole race like that. And it was, I mean, it is so fast. You can't. I mean, it's insane how fast because there's not really no slow corners at the Nurburgring Nordschleife. They're all, you know. Fifth, sixth, fourth, maybe. I think there's like one second gear corner, and then the rest is just fourth, fifth, sixth, all the way. So it's like full commitment the whole track. Mm. And, you know, you got to hit, I mean, if you don't hit your marks on the inch in a couple of places, you know, where you can go flat, you're in big trouble. So, I mean, it was, you know, but that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, it's a most satisfying thing you can do, you know, as a driver to do that and, and pull it off. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic feeling, but getting onto that, I think qualifying at Indy when it was, you know, when it was really on is a, a similar thing because you're trimmed out to the max and, you know, you're, you're, it's it's a it's a big commitment as well. So I would say put those two in kind of equal terms almost. I know I've told you this before, and it's said in a loving manner. I have no idea how you're still alive, man. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. first of all, you think of all the things you've driven. When I, when I sort of reflect on things, I'm like, I really shouldn't be alive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you being you, and again, I'm not blowing smoke. You know, I love you here, but like, dude. You never took it easy. There was no like, oh, we're just going to cruise in fifth gear. You're like, give me another gear. Give, you know, 250 miles an hour. Psh, that's for weak legs. Can we do 260? I'm like, how are you still alive? This makes no sense, man. Uh, let's go to, uh, I guess this is maybe a bit of an opposite direction. And one we discussed in a round table with you and Dario and uh, Hurley Haywood a few years ago. Uh, this is yeah. from our pal David Zitterbart says, oh, Stefan, other than having um, HPD put the rear tires in the front of their P1 car, what other engineering marvels have you been a part of? Before we get to the engineering marvels, can we talk about that 2009 HPD ARX, what, O2A LMP1 car where they legitimately put rear tires on the front? It wasn't wide front tires that they put on the car. They took the same tires from the rear and put them on the front because Michelin wouldn't really accommodate uh, with yeah. making bespoke front tires. You and Dario both in that round table said might have been among the most hated cars you've ever driven. Well, it was interesting how that whole thing came. I, I remember it clearly to this day because when I, I drove the Acura with, you know, with uh, Duncan Dayton's team. And as you do, you know, I mean, the conversations in the engineering room over a weekend is, you know, goes in a million different directions. And most of it is just complete nutter, nonsense, you know, but because um, you sit there and you, you know, you're just wasting time between sessions and stuff. So 
I, I can't, so the conversation, so I was kind of pondering with um, with the guys from, uh, I can't remember the name now, the, the people that did all the engineering for... Uh, Worth, Worth Research? Yeah, yeah, Nick Worth and uh, and those guys. And, and I said, so why is it that every single sports car I've ever driven always have understeer? It's just inherent in the cars. And, and then he went into this whole big explanation, you know, with the... On, there's not enough tire patch on the front. I said, well, I said, well, why don't we try to put the rears on the front? And everybody went completely silent, like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a stu- honestly, it was just a dumb joke, you know, as you throw out in the middle of a conversation, and next thing you know, <laughs> the, the new car shows up with rears on the front. <laughs> and that's literally how the whole thing started. But since you didn't have a bespoke front tire from a construction standpoint and so many other things, your throwaway line, which made perfect sense of, hey, we have more tire front, we should eliminate understeer. Uh, you didn't necessarily eliminate understeer. Um, and I know as Dario mentioned, it's like you had to drive each corner like it was five different corners or whatever it was. It really required a unique strange driving style that maybe wasn't the most fluid. Yeah, it was weird because it allowed no slip angle at all, you know, so you really had to just, the car had to just, I mean, literally minimum amount of steering input, which made it kind of weird, you know, but, uh, and it was a, you know, very inconsistent car always. It was never really a, a super fast car like from that, you know, it was when you got it right, when you got it dialed in, it was good. But as soon as it was out of the window, it was it was almost impossible. A race car you couldn't steer and was inconsistent. <laughs> Who could yeah. ask for more? Minor detail. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, don't use a throttle or brake. Other than that, yeah. go get them. Um, yeah. Let's move to a couple of fun uh, lookbacks here. Uh, one of them from Matthew Ponto. Uh, says, hey, Stefan, can you talk about your podium with the Onyx Formula One team in Portugal of 1989? He says, for much of the year, you struggled to get through pre-qualifying, and for that race, you qualified 12th. I was curious what went right that weekend, and how unexpected was it within the team? Well, we, yeah, well, it wasn't really 100% unexpected, to be honest. I mean, we always felt that if we can get within the sort of top 10, 12, a podium could be on the cards, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you put your game plan together properly. And we definitely did this time. You know, we, we basically focused on the race from the beginning once we got through pre-qualifying, which was brutal back then. Uh, and we we what I used to do all the time with the Goodyear guys was, you know, I always relied heavily on them because Obviously, they knew more about the tires up and down the pit lane than anyone else. So basically, we put a heat cycle in in uh, on Friday morning on the set that was going to be our race set, and we put another just you know three laps just to get a little bit of heat in the tire and then let them sit, and then we did the same on Saturday, and that would be the race set. So when the race starts, you know they they've already cured a little bit. Um, they were maybe a couple of tenths slower than they would be brand new, but we figured if I really, really nurse the car the whole race and not hustle it, but just drive it super smooth and gently, we could get it. We could get to the end on one set of tires. So that was our game plan from the beginning, and and that's what we did. You know, we we really executed perfect. You know, everybody else had to come in for tires, and uh, we went from whatever I think I got up to. Seventh or eighth, seventh, I think, on Mary, just on on passing people on the road anyway. But um, then, when the other guys had to come in, we we passed them on the road, obviously, and and made it to the end. But I mean, the tire, the left front, because of that very very long right hander before you get to the main straight, put such a load on the on the on the left front. Obviously, was literally I could see the steel canvas. <laughs> When I was driving, the last sort of 10 laps, it was literally down to the steel. And I was just waiting for the thing to go pop, you know, but thank God it lasted to the end. But uh, 
Um, but it was a, a kind of a funny story with that at the end. So we made it. Then I ran out of fuel on the, on the slowing down lap. So the car stopped on the track and uh, got late to the podium and Balestra was all pissed off with me. I said, well, what, what am I supposed to do? I can't help the car run on the fuel. I mean, you know. <laughs> and then, but then we got to the scrutineering and um, because it had worn so much of the tires, it was right on the limit on the weight. And I'll never forget because old, good old Charlie Whiting, you know, he was a good mate. Uh, he was like, you know, and he, I mean, he, everybody was so happy that we, all the guys, because we were all, you know, guys that known everybody for years, you know, uh, had such a great day and everything else. So Charlie was sort of like, he was kind of leaning over and he put his right knee just sort of slightly on the scale while he was talking to the guys that was doing the reading wow. to make sure. He, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good. Let's go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Look at that. Go, Charlie. <laughs> so, it's, uh, yeah, it was a great day. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, and, I yeah. believe, again, I'm just trying to think of things you and I have recorded. I just made a note that i got to get this one done. Uh, I know that you and I and one or two other drivers spoke about uh, Formula One pre-qualifying days. So I need to get yeah. that podcast going. That's pretty crazy. Um, it's going to stay with Onyx. Raymond Wong says, Steph, what was your first impression on Jean-Pierre Van Rossum? And when did the Onyx team start rolling downhill to a train wreck? Maybe you can tell folks who uh, the, this mercurial team owner uh, was. And, yeah, whether you had a feeling something was fishy from the beginning and uh, where things started to go south. Well, I mean, it was kind of on the limit before it even started, you know, because they had one guy from England, uh, uh, the original backer, who really never came through. So it was always right on the limit to even, like, get to the first race, you know. And uh, Van Rossen sort of came in as a sponsor through Bertrand Gasho, who was my teammate. And uh, I think he... He, I think he came in after Imola, if I remember correctly. So after the second race of the year, I think. Um, you know, obviously larger than life, you know, in his appearance and his everything, you know, very loud, very uh, big persona, you know. And uh, we were all like, well, you know, but, you know, racing, I mean, you know, you, you sort of just want to make it work. So everybody was working around it. But as the year went on, you know, we, I got to know him quite well, you know, and uh, financial guy he, had money. Moneytron was the sponsor, yeah. kind of early computer stock, you know, anal analysis and uh, and whatnot. So yeah, little yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, no one ever knew whether it worked or not. But I mean, his money came and went, you know, in a pretty volatile manner. I would say, you know, I mean, he. So I, I still to this day don't exactly know how he made his money or, or, you know, which way he went. But I'm sure he was playing the market pretty heavily, you know, and, uh, and take a lot of gambles, obviously. Um, that machine, I don't, I mean, there was some big thing sitting in a room in his office. But, I mean, I doubt whether it was ever even plugged in. Probably not. Wow. <laughs> yeah. but uh, But he was, you know. We we struck up a good relationship, you know. You, we became pretty good friends mm. at the time, you know. And uh, you know, whatever you say about the guy, he did everything he ever promised to do, and more, in fact. So I mean, the team, you know, uh, considering how late everything came about and how underfunded we were, and everything. I mean, we really. I mean, I don't think any team's ever been able to accomplish that in his first year in F one ever. In fact, even you know, big factory teams. So I think, you know, in, in, in that respect, I think everybody did an absolutely fantastic job. And the, the, the group of people that was assembled there is like, it was like really, really, really good guys. All of them. And then we had uh, what, I think it was him getting hauled off to jail and yeah, things. Uh... Yeah. But that was long, that was long after. I mean, the team, he, whatever happened in the next year, he sort of went, and then this guy Monteverdi came in, and that's when it just went downhill completely. I mean, he just sort of blew up at that point, you know. 
Mm. Craziness. Yeah. yeah, really. But hey, it's not the first one. I mean, that's kind of, you know, Formula One has a tendency to attract these, uh, these sort of guys. You know, it's a, it's a big ego business, you know, and every, everybody gets attracted. They get sucked into the, the glamour and everything else around it, you know. So it's, uh, it won't, it wasn't the last. It won't be the last, I don't think. Although it's a lot more difficult now, obviously. Absolutely. Let's go to some really great question here from our friend Carrie Bettenhausen. Says Stefan, uh, how about telling us about one of your favorite memories of his late uncle Tony, either on or off track? Uh, Todd Bettenhausen adds, "I'll bet you ten bucks it's Bump Day at Indy, nineteen ninety-five. That's my favorite." So, you share some tales about driving for the late and great Mister Bettenhausen. I uh, it was really a you know, fantastic years we had there, you know, I mean, Tony was the best. I mean, he was such a great guy and fun. I mean, we, we, I mean, I've never ever laughed so much with a team owner ever. That's for sure. I mean, he was hilarious, you know, and just his, his observations on things, you know, but I guess, I mean, Indy qualifying for sure, but that's a long story. That's almost a whole podcast on its own, you know, but the, the first, so when I came over, and this opportunity sort of came about, which really came through Steve Horn, funny enough. Really? Um, yeah, Steve, because I was going to, I was meant to drive for uh, with Steve Horn, and then things went pear shaped there with the uh, with the family, you know, the the co owners of the team. Um, the, I can't remember the red roof in people. Uh, Jim Truman, yeah. Yeah, the Truman family, yeah. So anyway, so that didn't come about. But he said, and he said, Steve said, well, I know Bettenhausen might be looking for someone just to, because he, he just had that. He didn't qualify at the Indy 500, you know, the, the month before. So he, he said he might be interested in putting someone in the car for Detroit. So I contacted him, you know, and we set it all up. Yeah, we agreed. And then I was going to come over and do a test at Putnam Park just to really a shakedown, just to, at least know where the dials were in the car and make sure the seat fit and everything. So we did. And he, you know, turned up there and uh, this pickup truck with a little trailer behind it turns up. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> bit, a bit different from the, the F1, you know, because I just left F1 then. That was, you know, first my first visit to America. You saying uh, Ron Dennis didn't pull up with a pickup truck in your McLaren no. F1 car in an open trailer? Not even in F3. <laughs> and uh, so we so we did the test and everything, you know, and, uh, uh, it was, you know, just did a few laps and it was all good. And then off, you know, we sort of sit down in a trailer there and... Uh, you know, you come from F1, you know, you got freaking physios, you got dietitians, you got people coming out of the yin yang, you know, to making sure you're okay. And all that. So, I'm like, God, do you have any water? Because it's hot as hell as well that day. So, I was like, just wanted some water after that. So, Tony, you know, no, nah, don't, we don't have water here. He goes, you know, but I got, so he brings out a mountain dew. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, loaded with sugar and everything else. It's like the last thing you want to drink after you've been driving a bloody race car. Um, but it was, you know, and then we went to Detroit and it, you know, went great. I finished third in the race. And then Tony said, well, I guess that's the last time I get in this car. And then we did a contract and I was with him for the next five years. Mm, beautiful. So, uh, beautiful. Great guy. Really, really, really good guy. Uh, it was a little bit of a shock to the system. I love that, though. You know, water. What do you mean, water? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, let's see. A couple more questions, Steph, then uh, we're going to let you get on with your day. Let's go to yeah. uh, let's go to Otto Kinzel. He says, hi, Stefan. Can you talk about what it was like as a car owner in Champ Car in 2003 and having a rookie by the name of Ryan Hunter Ray driving for you? said Champ Car was in a really tough spot at the time. Were you aware of the struggles the series was having? So what what do you think? Let's start with having this young rookie, Ryan Hunter Ray. Whatever happened to him? Yeah, he was, um, you know, I mean, it was a tough, a little bit of a tough uh, intro for him, too, because we were a new team, you know, and it was mm. tough to just get that thing going. But 
I mean, he impressed from the first moment, you know. I mean, Ryan's got a... He reminds me of Alan Prost in his driving style a lot. Very, very low effort, um, you know, very smooth, very precise, and very... There's just no scrub, you know. So, I mean, he's very... And it, that showed very early on, you know, that he's got, he's got a, a very good... Amazing feel. That's an amazing comparison to the professor, by the way. That, that that's a high honor right there. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, it was tough at times, you know, because there was a few incidents, but not necessarily his fault. But um, and the whole, you know, just getting the team together and getting the people. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot going on at the same time, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, Ryan was very, very impressive from the very first moment, you know, and. In fact, he won a, won a race in his first year, which is also impressive. Uh, so, yeah, and he's obviously shown, <laughs> shown his capability many, many, many times over since then. So, yeah. What about the, uh, the champ car side? I mean, obviously it lasted another four-ish years afterwards, but as a team owner, were you seeing or feeling any of the struggles um, at that point in time? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was evident, you know, everywhere, really. Uh, I had no real intention, to be honest with you, to do do a team in Champ Car, but they gave me pretty much the whole budget. So I said, well, I mean, what the hell, why not, you know, I'm going to start it up and, uh, and see how it goes, you know. Otherwise, I would have never entertained the idea, to be, you know, to be honest with you. Guy who owns sports car team, Indy car team, Indy lights team, at home or in his studio painting today. That sounds like a pretty good career arc, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra. Uh, it says, curious about Marcus Erickson. Uh, wondering how you rate him, knowing that obviously he hasn't necessarily had front running F1 machinery and the um, SPM, Aero SPM team last year wasn't as sharp as they would hope, but. Curious if you have any thoughts on uh, Marcus and where he might fit in uh, in IndyCar here with the Ganassi group and whether this guy might be able to show more. I think he's obviously got the talent. There's no doubt about it. You know, I think uh, you said it. He's never been, except in the, um, you know, GP2 days or F2, whatever. I don't know if it was F2 back then or you know, he was with winning teams and he, you know, won some races, obviously. But in F1, it's tough. You know, if you're in a back market team like mm-hmm. that, it's, it's it's always difficult to make a really good impression, I think. Um, and like I said, in IndyCar, you know, I think this, this year will be the year where, you know, he's now with a winning team. So I think that there's a good chance, I think, that he will – get the job done, you know, uh, no doubt about that. But, you know, as we know, with IndyCar more than any other series in the world, probably, execution is everything. I mean, you know, it, it's you can see there's so many good guys and you got to get everything right on the day. You know, you can't screw up the pits or strategy or a lot of the factors are maybe beyond the driver's control too because it, strategy plays a big part as well. Uh, and everything so but you know i think from what i've seen so far i think there's a good chance he'll do a good job no question well let's stay with uh one of your other fellow swedes this uh young punk known as felix rosenqvist <laughs> thoughts about uh, you know we blame you for bringing him here he's a terrible human being why did you do that to yeah. us kidding aside love that guy thoughts on yeah. him in year two next to your uh your defining and shining client Good old Mr. Dixon. I mean, you kind of got most of the Ganassi team to yourself now, but nonetheless, give me thoughts about him, where you think he might uh, might fit in at the end of the year, performance-wise. Well, absolutely, I think so. I mean, he, you know, obviously showed last year already that, uh, you know, he's definitely got the speed. You know, he's just, you know, unfortunate in a couple of races when he was on pole and so on that he couldn't pull it together, you know, for different reasons um, but no question I mean I think he'll be a front runner uh, for sure will you be uh, shocked if the if the season ends without Felix being at least a, a one-time race winner or do you think the strange year ahead you know compressed schedule 
might uh, might factor into things somehow. Well, it, it will, but it will for everybody. So I think, you know, when obviously everybody's in the same boat, you know, so I think it's, again, you know, a lot of it will be circumstances, but, uh, you know, even though you have the odd surprise when the cream always rises to the top and I expect him to be part of that group for sure, definitely. Two questions to go, my friend. Uh, this one's from Ed Canerva. It's curious how you met Mark Knopfler the dire straits and asks what is it like to be remembered in arguably the best racing song <laughs> yeah. uh, well mark now we met in australia the first time at the in adelaide at the grand prix there in 85 i believe it was uh, he was there i think he was touring australia and he he was in adelaide mm. i think he was doing the um, yeah he did the uh, pro uh, celebrity race big racing fan yeah huge huge fan yeah and um and we just sort of got chatting and struck up a, you know almost immediately a good friendship and we've been good mates ever since you know just uh, saw him before this whole thing came down uh, earlier this year and when i was in london the last time good man i've actually yeah. never heard the song so I've heard folks talk about it, but I guess I've got to listen to it. Yeah, it's funny. So basically, the song is uh, is this is back in the day before we had mobile phones and those kind of luxuries, you know. So we were just, you know, we were both on the road, and every now and then, you know, you sit bored in our hotel room and we used to call each other, you know, and just bullshit really for hours sometimes, you know. And I guess he chronicled our conversations over the whole year. And that's basically, if you if you look look at the lyrics of the song, that's kind of what it is, you know. Well, let's, uh, let's close with uh, Simon Steele. It says, Steph, what inspired you to take up art? And I should also mention, if <clears> folks <throat> aren't following you on Instagram, they certainly should because they're going to get to see that amazing studio. Uh, and no, also get to see a lot of the art that you're uh, you're producing and selling as well. Yeah. You, you're not just yeah. doing this. I mean, granted, when I was there yeah. two years ago or whatever it was, uh, the place you know you you didn't have enough wall space to put up all the stuff you're cranking out. But tell us about yeah. what inspired you to do this and how this has become. I don't know if I should call it a business, but you are at least you know selling some of the cool stuff that you produce. Yeah, no, definitely, and I, I, I'm not treating it as a business now. I mean, for the first, you know, really, uh, I mean, it's. I've always, I've always had an interest in art and design since quite young. My my grandfather was an artist, so I guess I've kind of had it in the genes somewhere, maybe. Uh, but I really didn't start doing anything until, and I can't say it's an inspiration because it's it's maybe you know, the exact opposite of that, because when, you know, Elio DeAngelis was my best buddy, we were like brothers almost, you know, we very, very close. And when he got killed, <clears throat> I was one of the guys that was trying to pull him out of the car as well. Yeah. And he had his accident, myself and Alan Jones and uh, Jack Lafitte. And it was a pretty, pretty traumatic and heavy experience to say the least, you know, and, for whatever reason, which I really don't know to this day, but something prompted me to go and get a canvas and some paint and try to do something in his memory, you know, and um, wow. and that's really how it got started. And then I got hooked on it, you know, fairly quickly. And then I've been I've been doing it ever since, more like a hobby, really. But since the last three, four, five years now, I've got this great studio here, and I've started to develop. I'd already kind of developed the style in my head, but I hadn't really sort of done anything about it yet because I didn't have any space to do it. But now I've been churning out a lot of stuff, you know, and, and uh, really that's sort of my new career, if you like, in a way. Obviously, I'm still involved in racing a lot, but a lot of my time and effort really goes into the art, you know. Uh, I'd like to be able to develop it into somewhat of a legacy in my life, you know, and... Um, and we're starting to commercialize it now and selling some of the abstracts that I do, which all relate to it's kind of been all of the paintings are inspired by my experience experiences in racing, you know, so each corner, each, each painting is named after a different corner on the Formula One circuit. And, um, and we're doing a lot of different cool products with that. Now we're doing the prints, but we're going to launch 
some clothing items with the same kind of uh, art featured on them and, and different things. So, and we're starting to uh, we're selling it on on the website too. So, if anyone's interested, that's put in SJ20 and you get a 20% discount on anything you buy. <laughs> Look at that. We got a little sales and promotion going here. I love it. Uh, all right, Steph. So all right. you, uh, man, I'm just telling you, you are a gift to us. You re- And I mean this, you really are one of the few Renaissance men in our sport driven more thousand horsepower cars than anybody amazing wins and all kinds of series lamar here there you name it driver manager watchmaker artist uh i'm uh, hell you're still involved on the consulting and management side with racing teams i mean i don't know doctor is that coming next i don't know what the hell else you're gonna do man but I met this guy in Australia years ago, and he gave me his business cards, and I'll never forget it because it, it sort of reminds me of myself. That he put his name on it, and underneath it said, so many pies, not enough fingers. For <laughs> 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 good or bad, I think that kind of sums me up as well, you know, but. I think you also got a name for your strip club when you start it, too. So. It's not a burden, you know. Yeah. Wow. Well, brother, thanks as always. And I made more notes here about more podcasts we need to capture. So thank you for uh, spending some time here. Thanks to our listeners for some great questions. Thanks as well to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm Marshall Pruitt. That is Stefan Johansson. We'll speak to you next week.